0: Hello and welcome to A Health Podacy.
1: I think some could make the same argument that if there's a value enhancement strategy by PE firms, then it behooves them to actually raise the level of care delivery up because that enhances the value and sort of engineers a better sale.
0: I'm your host, Alan Weil. Private equity involvement in the healthcare system is growing. In 2018, the valuation of private equity deals in the U.S. healthcare sector surpassed $100 billion, a 20-fold increase from 2000, when it was less than $5 billion. Now, some analysts are concerned that the incentive structures built into private equity financing have exacerbated practices, such as surprise billing, and the general trend of increasing healthcare prices. Despite the increased presence of private equity in healthcare, there's been little systematic examination of its scope and even less analysis of its effects on access and spending. The role of private equity in hospitals is the topic of today's health policy. I'm joined by Dr. Agnese Ofodile, an assistant professor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and a fellow at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Dr. Efodile and his co-authors published a paper in the May 2021 issue of Health Affairs that characterizes private equity acquisitions of acute care hospitals from 2003 to 2017. They found that private equity acquisitions occur predominantly in the Mid-Atlantic and Southern U.S. and are more likely to be of hospitals that are for-profit in urban areas and have larger bed sizes, more discharges, and more full-time staff. Dr. Rufodile, welcome to the program. Pleasure to
1: be here, Alan. Thanks for having me. And on behalf of my team, we're excited to be here.
0: Yeah, we're so happy to have you uh, joining us in this conversation. So I'm not sure all of our listeners have thought very deeply about the term private equity that they probably hear every once in a while in the news. What is private equity investment?
1: So private equity um, really can be thought of as an alternative investment class, so sort of removed from the public markets. Um, that usually sources um, funding from big institutions. So you think of university endowments, foundations, and or high net worth individuals. Um, and the business model is to use this capital to direct investments in companies, public or private, um, for the purpose of gaining control. So they are able to drive the day-to-day operations in a way that over time, will sort of lead to revenue growth potential and value enhancement. So at the time of a subsequential sale, about three, seven years, there is sort of a profit that's returned back to the limited partners, investors, and the fund.
0: So just to be clear, this investment is, it tends to be for a limited amount of time. The idea is you acquire, you increase value, and then you sell. Correct.
1: Yeah, so- I, and and I think that sets up one of the things I'd like to talk about is just how those three things sort of set apart private equity from other actors in the healthcare space.
0: Well, I was just about to ask you, so why would it matter if private equity is involved in a hospital finance? And sounds like you were just about to tell me.
1: We think sort of private equity, we just call it PE, PE firms um, acquiring hospitals, we think is interesting and why it's important for two things. First of all, I think sort of it raises questions as to the value proposition intrinsic to healthcare. So I think proponents of PE behavior in healthcare would say that sort of the prevailing inefficiencies in healthcare, which we all talked about and written about waste, redundancies, um, those are actually opportunities for these firms where they can bring in sort of managerial discipline um, and sort of financial, and operational engineering to sort of right the ship or cost correct somewhat. So that's, that's one argument. Um, and then how this plays out is to be determined. But I think secondly, and you touched on it, it raises um, sort of first order questions as to sort of what are the type of economic incentives um, that need to be aligned in healthcare to sort of engender high quality outcomes? So th- those are two big questions that sort of at least points of concern or importance to healthcare.
0: Now, about one out of every five hospitals in this country is uh, investor-owned or for-profit anyway. The majority are non-profit, and then they're also uh, uh, government-publicly-owned hospitals. So why is PE different from just the general matter of of hospitals being uh, for-profit?
1: So we think that PE firms uh, and the acquisition of these health systems, um, along three elements, are sharply different from anything else in the healthcare space. So number one is the reliance of debt on debt. So um, it's called a leverage buyout. So PE firms tend to acquire very mature businesses like hospitals and health systems. Um, so to do that, they use what's called a leverage buyout, which is about, numbers differ, but about 20, 30% equity and the rest, 70, 80% debt. And uh, so and that debt is typically collateralized by the assets of the target hospital health systems. So, so that's interesting, number one. Number two, is this, uh, is this reality that PE firms um, sort of have the portfolio company, which is the target target entity, for a short period of time with which they can sort of engineer the operational changes to enhance or extract value. So that time bound of three to seven years is also interesting. And number three, um, PE, there's almost sort of a primacy of returning um, large returns to the investors in these firms. So like sort of these institutional investors or high net worth individuals sort of are able to accept a long period of illiquidity. So another of 10 years with the expectation that they'll have really high Analyze returns on the order of 20% that outperforms the public markets. So those are three sort of business realities that PE firms sort of deal with that we think set apart from the usual for-profit actors in healthcare.
0: Now, I know this isn't really a business podcast, but we are talking about the business of healthcare. So let me just make sure I understand the first of those and what the three together mean. Uh, When you say there's a lot of uh, debt, um, Presumably, that's fairly risky debt, so they're paying a pretty high return. Is that right? If you if you're one of the, the uh, buyer, the holders of the debt in a in a PE transaction.
1: So the key nuance there is that that debt is collateralized by the target or the acquired hospital system. So so that's the first point of, of of interest that is was surprising to me, and the reason why. Um, they use debt or leverage is a the way that's handled tax wise is favorable for them, and number two that does increase the returns. So like you know if 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 you finance through debt, then the and you make a profit, then the profit functionally is significantly increased than if it was totally acquired. By equity. So, so the, the leverage drives the amount of returns or it sets a pretty high ceiling of returns for these for these transactions.
0: Okay, that makes a ton of sense to me. So really the combination of these elements says for those who are providing capital to these PE transactions. And again, forgive me, I may get the lingo wrong because I'm not a finance guy.
1: I work on a lingo myself.
0: You're you're tying up your money for a while. But you're highly leveraged, so you're really looking for very high levels of returns, and those returns have to come from the proceeds of whatever company that you've invested in. So what, what makes it different from standard private ownership is the need, in order to be successful, to throw off pretty significant uh, Uh, amounts of money through either the income of the enterprise or the value of the enterprise going way up in a short amount of time.
1: Correct. Yeah. And and as follow on to that, Alan, it raises questions in my mind as what sort of behaviors on the part of these owners, PE owners, does that sort of incentivize or promote or reward, right? Um, so that's why we think it's an interesting sort of paradigm to look at in healthcare.
0: Yeah. So after we get a little bit of a better sense of where the PE investments are occurring, I really do want to get into this, you know, after all, this is a healthcare system designed to promote health. And are we worried about its ability to do that if this kind of money is involved? But before we do that, just to um, put this in the context, your paper that we published was on hospitals. As you said at the outset, private equity investment in healthcare isn't just in hospitals. Can you give us a little bit of a broader picture of where PE investment is occurring?
1: Yeah, so it tends to run the whole gamut actually, Alan. So, um, you know, PE investments go all the way from retail clinics to nursing homes, to increasingly physician practices, both specialty and sort of general practitioners, to hospice facilities, to hospitals as we investigate. So it really runs the whole gamut of the sort of healthcare value chain, so to speak. Um, And and I think this activity has increased over the last decade, certainly since 2010. Um, And I think um, for all this activity, um, we thought that it may warrant some close examination without presupposing the effects, either positive or negatively, but just characterizing it. And that's how we did this paper, Larger descriptive is to sort of paint, uh, do an environmental scan and paint the contours of PE activity. So then we can now sort of tease out potential, what really hypothesis generation, and then focus in on sort of targeted questions later on.
0: And you mentioned it tends to focus on mature sectors. So this isn't like venture capital coming in with some brand new startup that's disrupting the world. This is established businesses with established revenue and spending patterns saying we can do better.
1: Classic. Exactly right.
0: And um, why did you focus uh, on hospitals?
1: So great question for a couple of reasons. Um, One is there's very little work in this area. So the bulk of the activity has been really actually working in health affairs by David Grabowski looking at nursing homes. So, so, So there's a lot of the decent footprint on nursing homes. Increasingly now, physician practices has been a point of research interest, but there's not a lot of activity, say for one paper that just came out last year that really has addressed hospital systems. So that was interesting to us. So there's a gap there, we thought. Number two is I think why hospitals are interesting is beyond that's my practice setting. Uh, There's also the fact that we're able to crosswalk to claims and administrative data sets and now begin to say, okay, What's the impact on the things we all care about, spending, access, quality, patient experience, in a way that you can't easily do, if at all, with other sort of health delivery or provider sectors? So that was the second reason. And the third reason, this is, we thought, you know, maybe of a stretch, but we think that sort of hospitals are actually particularly attractive to PE firms because, A, they have these fixed assets, so they have real estate, they have land, they have technology, um that I think in some ways almost guarantee um, an exit of value creation because they have those things that can be deployed.
0: well, I'll give you a fourth reason. It's more than a trillion dollars a year of national health expenditures and about a third of all the spending in healthcare. So as big as nursing homes and physician practices may be, If you're looking for where the money is in healthcare, you kind of have to look at the hospitals. Um, Well, I'm really eager to get into the um, descriptive findings as you pointed out, and then the implications, which you've teased a bit. Uh, We'll talk about those uh, after we take a quick break.
1: Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of health affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading health policy journal. Subscribers have exclusive access to health affairs research ahead of print articles and resource pages. Subscribe today by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org.
0: And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Ofodile about uh, the role of private equity in hospitals within the healthcare sector. Uh, Your paper gave a lot of information about where you see transactions involving private equity. So let's just sort of start with the basic characteristics. You compared hospitals that were acquired with hospitals that weren't acquired and you found some differences. Uh, what are a few of those differences?
1: Right, so we saw that uh, on average, hospitals that were um, acquired by PE firms tended to be bigger based on bed size, tended to be like you alluded to um, situated in urban areas they're overwhelmingly for-profit, um, and a lot of that was reflected in the HCA deal by Bain and KKR.
0: Actually, let, let me stop you there because that really is that's kind of the, a big footnote here. So there is one transaction that dominates this period. And just say a little bit more about it so that, so that our listeners know what that is.
1: Sure. So there was an, an acquisition um, by several um, firms, but notably Kane, um, KKR and Bain, that involved HCA, of so based out of Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, in 2006, seven, I believe, around that time period. And that deal um, sort of, because it was a health system, really accounted for over 50% of the total hospitals represented in our sample. Um, so that sort of um, drove a lot of the results, although we did do... S- subgroup analysis where we teased that out, but but that deal drove a lot of the directionality of our results. So I think we, we did have to acknowledge that as well.
0: Yeah. Sorry to have interrupted. I just, uh, that HCA deal is such a, a presence in this analysis. So you were saying, what what are the characteristics of those who were required?
1: Right. Uh, and so, so they tended to be bigger based on bed size, have a for-profit orientation, and over time sort of reflect more patient, Flow So, based on discharges compared to non-PE acquired hospital. And interestingly, uh, they tended to have a better sort of um, antecedent financial performance compared to non-target hospitals, so looking at margins and cost-to-charge ratio. And that performance tracked better um, over, you know, so we just sort of looked at um, it's the study period of 2003 to 2017. So over the study period, they tended to perform better as well. So I think what this sort of, and, and, I, and I'll say lastly, that there, there were some shifts, discrete shifts in staffing levels. If you think about nursing and total FTEs, that we could sort of pick up a signal in looking at the data. Specifically, PE-acquired hospitals tended to contract or not expand FTEs, nursing and total staffing over time compared to non-target hospitals. So those are the main things. Now, I say also, there seem to be uh, a pattern where a lot of these deals happen in the Mid-Atlantic and southern southern United States with not a ton of footprint in the sort of Midwest or Pacific Northwest or the West Coast which sort of um, strikes me as being non-random and sort of raises questions so like what's driving this. Is it demographic shifts largely? Is it sort of a footprint of for-profit hospitals and faith-based institutions? These are all inferences, but it does sort of invite those sort of questions, certificate of need laws as well. So, so I think it was a very rich sort of um, investigation that sort of raised more questions than provided answers, which is always sort of what you want, in something like this.
0: Well yeah, you're very clear and uh, and I want to be clear here too. I mean, this is a sort of a stage setting paper. It describes the universe and uh, then it raises questions and and you're going to have to do additional analyses and other people have to use these data to do initial uh, additional analyses to address some of those questions. Um I was struck by a couple of elements there. There has sort of been this mythology around the struggling hospital. Um, and that, you know, they're about to go under and someone comes in and rescues them. It looks like that's not what's going on. Say a little more there.
1: That's, that's perfect. So I you know, I think Alan, um there's always a temptation to sort of anchor to anecdotes or whatever is in the in the news. So I think classically there's the Hanneman experience in Philadelphia. And and I think that's fine, but I think we want to be certainly very disciplined in how we sort of did the environmental scan. And you're right, what we did see is the prevailing narrative that PE firms sort of come in to a distressed asset um, and sort of take over and either extract value or enhance value to be determined. Um, And then sort of engineer a sale, that did not seem to play out. A lot of our hospitals were fairly healthy financially pre-acquisition. So we looked at the year prior to the PE buying the health system, so they're all doing pretty well based on margins and cost to charge ratio. Um, they were big and they were in urban areas, so so it, it certainly um, threatens that narrative a little bit that that may not be the case. We certainly did see reports, and we put it in the appendix and our point readers to that where they were sort of distressed hospitals that were acquired by P.E., but that was not the majority. That was certainly not the norm. that That's, I think, probably one of the big take-home lessons for us as a group was actually exactly that.
0: So, the dominant story from a data perspective is these are relatively healthy hospitals with good balance sheets and good cash flow, and PE comes in, and going back to where we started, it has certain imperatives for what it's got to deliver to those who are making the investment. What would you want to know to figure out whether or not the PE investment was good or bad? Um, That's a very simplistic language, but helpful or harmful or patient-supporting or patient-harming, what's the next stage of understanding what the implications of, of this PE activity are? So for, so
1: the way we're um, approaching this, so the next stage is to sort of build out, um, using clean and administrative databases, line of sight on the things we all care about. So how does PE have or play out with respect to workforce implications? So specifically staffing levels? Sta- Nurse to patient ra- staffing ratios, and also, quite frankly, nursing intensity. Like, w- what what happens with that? As you could imagine, most hospitals tend to be the largest employers in the mis- municipality. So, if in our study period we saw a contraction or less uh, uh, less increase over time, then is that reproducible with like an econometric proper analysis? And if so, what questions does that raise with respect to quality? Um, and I think the type of Things we will need to really make a robust analysis is um, basically more transparency, especially around at the time of the deal what are the hospitals or the facilities that are part of the health system? And also at the time of PE exit. What do things look like? You know, so I think it was really so. You know, we say in the paper that one limitation is a lot of these, you know, it's private equity. A lot of these deals are private, so we had to do a lot of, you know, sleuthing to tease it out. Um, worth it certainly, but I think more transparency will be key because these deals are not under the same purview. That you think about for horizontal consolidation M and A activity. This is separate, um, but the behavior may be the same or even more extreme or less. But certainly warrants closer oversight.
0: Um, yeah, I was really struck by that, and I, I guess I just want to put a, a, a little exclamation point. I mean, you had to do some serious digging to get the data, and there's still limitations. But as you pointed out, these are these are changes in ownership structure, but they're not mergers that would get the scrutiny of the typical antitrust uh, entities that are worried that uh, too much of a certain commodity is being sold by one entity. So what are the reporting requirements here?
1: Uh, so uh, most deals, and we have to go through this, is something called the SEC 10K form um, that sort of most transactions are required to report. I and mean, we really like anchored around that. Uh, and once we're able to identify from that, the, the, the health systems, the hospitals in the health systems, we then sort of crosswalked to other data points, which we lay out in our, in our paper. Um, so I think more transparency, public transparency, uh, and that will involve sort of creating a data set on clear who managed that. But I think sort of more public transparency as to at the time of the deal, what are the hospitals contained with it and facilities, whether it's ER or hospice? I think that would be helpful because I think the key thing is really understanding for these facilities um, how do they perform along the metrics we all care about? You know, I, I will say that sort of one thing that struck me was in 2017, 11% of all patient discharges were from a hospital that had a history of PE ownership. I mean, that was incredibly fascinating to me. And, you know, and when you think about within those hospitals, the patient flow, so, you know, 11,000 sort of patient discharges compared to non-PE of, of 9,300, um, you know, margins of 7.4% compared to a negative margin non-PE hospitals. I mean, this really has an impact that is worth um, sort of line of sight on by everyone, I think, administrators, researchers, and regulators.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you, again, have been clear that this is just sort of foundational data, but obviously you went into this inquiry with some concerns. I shouldn't say obviously, it sounds to me like you have some concerns about potential negative uh, uh, consequences, or maybe there's some room for some positive. There's so much attention paid sort of to the macro question of how much we spend on healthcare. And certainly if the presence of PE is driving up prices and causing uh, out-of-network bills to go up. That's a cost problem. Correct. But how might you, as a clinician, also think about the quality of care problem?
1: Correct. And and I will say that sort of our group, we sort of had no um, bias coming into this. You know, I think. Um, speaking for myself, personally, I think like a lot of things in the healthcare, I would expect the data to be mixed. You know, I think there will be some positive effects in some in some contexts and negative in others, and on the average, probably mixed. If I was to guess, I think the interaction with quality is if, like we've established, that sort of those three things—the exit, the primacy of limited partners, and the and the debt uh, leverage buyout—sort of may drive sort of certain behaviors. Um, in excess of what we've seen in a typical for-profit actor, right? And the question becomes, um, are there unintended consequences or trade-offs invited due to sort of pursuit of profitability? I I think some could make the same argument that if there's a value enhancement strategy by PE firms, then it behooves them to actually raise the level of care delivery up because that enhances the value and sort of engineers a better sale. I think you make equal arguments, right? So I think PE firms could say, look, we're gonna come in and streamline processes and get care quality up, improve our performance on hospital compare, on leapfrog. And that sort of, you know, I think that's a credible argument that can be made. So I think sort of, and with great humility in seeing that sort of exploratory results and how it challenged the prevailing narrative um A, we're glad that we took this sort of stage approach, and I look to see what we find, which we're doing now, with respect to quality spending accesses, ac- access um, domains.
0: Well, I really appreciate you uh, answering it that way. So so there clearly are potential upsides. We just don't know if they exist. And in many respects, this sounds like uh, similar conversations we have about consolidation in general, which can increase the economic leverage of an institution, but can also Create potential for alignment and efficiency and, and clinical information sharing uh, that that could be positive for patients and we it's an empirical question whether or not it is so I have to ask as we wrap up this session you, are, <laughs> you you're a surgeon this Correct. isn't exactly what you talk about in the surgical suite. How did you come to uh, focus on this area in your work
1: thank you alan um so um, as, as you, you you graciously introduced me, uh so I'm a, a fellow at the Baker Institute of the Think Tank at Rice University. And I'm also a fellow at the National Academy of Medicine and Health Policy as well. And the way sort of we came on this topic is I did a series of papers with the second author, Marcelo Cerullo, where we looked at um hospital consolidation and how it interacts with the price and the volume of breast reconstruction. And the reason why I picked that was, in some ways, we thought of breast reconstruction as being shoppable in a way that other aspects of cancer care delivery were not. Um, So it's preference sensitive. um, It's not acute, particularly. um, It's not widely available. So it does lend itself to sort of a market good in some ways. And what we found, actually, was, you know, the market, the invisible hand, so to speak, does indeed drive the volume and pricing around this service. So then we thought, okay, could we sort of, un- sort of um, uncouple the market a little bit and think of it as for-profit um, and non-profit and see if there's any sort of interaction there? And we came to realize through looking at the literature and a lot of the work in health affairs on the journals, that sort of maybe that dichotomy is not as clear as we would like to think or certainly admit. Um, I think that the evidence is pretty robust at this point. to so like sort of behaviors by those two entities we thought, okay, what is an actor in healthcare space that maybe may provoke or at least elicit a true um, distinction in behavior? And that's how we got to private equity. Um, and then sort of it's been a, a two and a half year journey and um, certainly more to come. And thank you for the platform. And certainly my team across Duke, the big institute, and Janssen, were are pretty excited um, for, the, for the platform at health affairs.
0: Well, Doctor Afodila, it was uh, really great to get to meet you and hear about your work and what motivates it and how you got here. Um, I'm looking forward to a lot more. You've clearly found a topic that is both important and interesting in healthcare, but also uh, has clearly gets your interest going, which is the best kind of research of all. So, thanks for joining me uh, today on a Health Policy. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a Health Policy health policy is produced by health affairs the leading journal for health policy research the team behind the show includes patty sweet jeff byers julia vivolo sarah kolk and sue ducat like the show subscribe to a health policy on apple podcast spotify stitcher google or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts thanks for listening and have a great morning day or evening